All right, guys, we'll go ahead and get started. I'll get this out of my way here. Go ahead and get started. We are on, obviously, we're on our last two uh, for the, yeah, for the summer. It's kind of crazy, but for those of you who are in college, um, next Thursday, we actually already get underway at the table, so we'll be, oh, yeah, we'll be at least just getting together to hang out and stuff like that, so, so yeah, but last, last Wednesday of the summer, here are the two that we're going to be talking about. Um, we're talking about heaven slash revelation in this first session, and then we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about basically the gospel of God as as we try to define it, and and in some some sense kind of giving a summary of the of the week or of the summer. But before we do that, quick question: I want to just kind of hear from you guys. Um, what as you heard it, and rather than breaking up in a small group, since we're already sort of a you know small group. Um, what as you grew up did you hear heaven explained as or defined as? So, so when this question, maybe you asked your Sunday school teacher, what is heaven? What are the things that were said about heaven to you growing up or maybe last week in a Sunday school class? I don't care when, but, but kind of through your life. What, how has heaven been explained or defined to you? What? Yeah, just blurting out. Okay. Well, <laughs> yes, Anthony. Well, my mom always told me that it was like nothing but pure worship all the time. Okay, nothing but pure worship all the time. Okay, what, what else? Streets of gold. Streets of gold. That one gets. That's like one of the. That one gets in there a lot. Yep. Okay, yeah. All the stuff that's... Yeah. Anything, yeah, that's true. Anything that's not quite like you like it here or coming up short, that'll get taken care of on the other side once we get to heaven. So that's, that's a big thing, yeah. Say what? The country of heaven. Okay, the kingdom of heaven. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So you you had kind of almost like the physical location of it, or not location, but physical description of it. Is that what you're talking about? Not really. Okay. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven only out in creation is what you said. Getting a glimpse of it from creation. Get, got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So that we see, we see bits of heaven as we look at creation around us and stuff like that. Okay. Yep. I get that. Get that. It's up. It's up. Yes. It's that is. Yeah. There. Yep. And then later in life, I began to think, oh, it's in other dimensions. Yes. When I began to think Yes. Those yeah. Yeah. That is up is always kind of the big, the big statement that's made and. uh and that becomes obviously an issue because uh, up is down if you live in Australia, right? And that would, you know, hell would be up and all that stuff. So, but that is kind of, that's the common picture. Even when we, even when we kind of know better now, it's hard for me to break that, that picture in my head, right? And, and we know because things like Jesus ascending into heaven even kind of gives us that a little bit, that. Um, that picture, that mental picture that it's got to be up. Um, so that's good. 
Um, here's kind of, let me, uh, let me show you. This has been, oh, I'm actually going to use different, different ink here. Um, unless this is just a black mark with a, okay. This is really a lot of the picture of, of how heaven is often described as though it's almost two, two different spots, two different uh, places in the same space-time continuum. Um, that it's a, just, it's a different location. Um, and they, but they inhabit, heaven and earth inhabit these two unique and different spaces. And, and the goal, obviously, is, is to live in such a way in that, you know, when you die, you get to travel to this space, wherever it is, whether it's up or elsewhere, or something, that you actually travel and you get to go to that space. And so that's kind of the way it's often described as a different space or different um, location or even some sense you could say a different time. Um, that we, you know, heaven is often talked about as an after you die or, a, uh, or after Jesus comes back, you go to, you travel to, how, whatever that means or looks like, you go to heaven is kind of the term we say. Do you know where you're going to go after you die, right? And is it going to be going towards heaven or going towards hell and those kinds of things? And so this is the way we often think about it. The, the biblical picture is actually something a little bit more... Um, that you have these two different, I, mean, I like you said actually, dimensions is, is maybe even a better way to think of it, that they operate on di different dimensions, and that they can actually, those two di different dimensions can fill the same space. Um, and, and that they can actually, there can be overlap between them. And so what you have kind of in the beginning with the Garden of Eden is God creates it, and everything is good, and everything is right as it should be. And so it actually looks a little bit more like this, these two circles sitting on top of each other, in which in the Garden, um, much of what heaven is is experienced because you have the glory of God there, and the reign of God there, and the joy of God there. And the presence of God, which is, which is really a great description of what heaven is, is God's presence and, and, and glory uh, manifested and seen clearly. And so you have this here in the garden, and this is kind of what it looks like, that they can occupy much the same space. And then um, sin takes place. Whoops. And these two dimensions get separated. And so now these two dimensions are, are pulled apart by the rebellion of human beings when Adam and Eve rebel, and so they, they split apart. And because this becomes really the definition of what, uh, of what humanity is, is rebellion, now these two not only are separated, but in some sense they are, well, definitely they are against each other in a lot of ways. The kingdoms of earth and the, and the kingdom of heaven fight against each other. But this is the really fascinating thing, is that if I could kind of, change this one more time. The Bible seems to indicate to us and seem to explain to us that there's actually like pockets of overlap. Even, even like here on earth um, that we see places where both of these two things line up, where both of these two realities um, overlap together and come together. Let me, and let me say this as I'm kind of describing and explaining. Um, there's a website and a lot of what my teaching on this session is coming from this and coming from some stuff that N.T. Wright has written, but it's called jointhebibleproject.com. And, and you, need to, you need to, like after we're, we're done, you need to go home and go to directly jointhebibleproject.com. Um, it's, it's two guys, but, but kind of a third. Um, but 
two guys make these videos, what they're basically doing, you have a guy who's a pastor, and he's a PhD in Semitic languages and biblical studies, and you have another dude who's like a heavy kind of creative arts guy, and so they're making these videos that are covering different themes throughout scripture, and also doing books, so you can choose books or themes, and you can click on Leviticus, and it will give you a, an explanation of, of what Leviticus is and how it unfolds. Or you can click on something like Heaven and Earth, and it will give you this. Or there's one called the Covenants that really falls very much in line with what we've been teaching this summer. Their goal is to, um, we call it the story of Scripture, their goal is to teach the Bible in a narrative format. Um, so uh, it's, it's really good and, and very helpful. So be sure to check that out. But here's kind of one of the things that's kind of mentioned there is that you have these pockets sometimes where it seems like the two overlap. Here's, here's a good example of it, and we talked about it early on. Genesis, when, when Jacob, I believe it's 28 is what I have. Yeah, Genesis 28, when Jacob is on the run from Esau, and he's going up to his mother's family in, in Paramaran, and he's going up to see... Um, Lamech and, and the family there, Laban and the family, he stops off at this place called Bethel. And when he's there, he has a dream. You remember, in the dream, he sees this ladder or this staircase with angels ascending and descending up into heaven and down into earth. And he wakes up and he has this realization that there was more going on than just normal earth stuff there. And, and this is what he says in Genesis 28, starting in verse 16. Um, for sure I find it. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob seems to realize that there's some sort of overlap taking place. That, that I mean, I was experiencing more than just the earth here, more than just that realm. There was, there was more to it. And so this overlap exists the best example of it that we have in the Old Testament, the best display of that is the tabernacle. Tabernacle slash temple once the Israelites finally settle in the land. But the tabernacle is this spot in which God comes and right there in the midst of His people, right there in that group as they're traveling around, He comes and He dwells right in the middle of them. And so the presence of God is there, um, meaning in some sense heaven is there at that spot. Um, but the tabernacle, the overlap there, also reveals to us that that, that comes at a cost. And so God can't just, we talked about a few weeks ago, God can't just come and dwell in the middle of the people. You can't just put heaven where earth is and let people be there because their sinfulness puts them over in this rebellious category. And so in order for that to happen, something has to come to absorb or remove their sinfulness. And in the Old Testament, that something was animal sacrifice. And so in order for God to be dwelling amongst His people, in order for a holy God to be amongst sinful people, and in order for a sinful high priest to go back into the Holy of Holies, the very place where the presence of God dwelled above the Ark of the Covenant, animals had to die. Something had to die. Blood had to be spilled to be able to absorb that person's sin so that they could then come in and inhabit this space right here. And so animal sacrifice becomes kind of the way of showing that there is a cost for that overlap, for that pocket to come and for someone to come into it. Um, and then Jesus comes to the earth. Um, in the New Testament, Jesus comes and, and some really interesting language gets used to describe His coming. 
specifically in John. So in John chapter 1, it actually says this, is at verse 14, John chapter 1 verse 14 says that Jesus came and he dwelled among us, or he made his dwelling among us. The word is literally pitched his tent, or he tabernacled among us. And so it's literally saying this is the same way that the tabernacle was the overlap, the space where heaven and earth intersect. Jesus is now doing that. And then later in that chapter, when he's talking to Nathaniel, another thing we referenced, he speaks to Nathaniel and says, I tell you that you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. During these next few years of ministry, you're going to see amazing things. You'll see angels ascending and descending on me, i.e., you're like, I'm Bethel. I'm the new place where heaven and earth intersect. I'm that location. I'm Jacob's ladder. And then later in chapter 2, when he goes in and he causes like a ruckus in the temple and the leaders ask him, tell us, explain to us what authority you have to do this. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. And they get all mad thinking he's going he's gonna to come after our temple. Who's he think he is? John explains they didn't know, but what he was talking about was his own body. And Jesus describes his own physical bodily presence as the temple, as, the, as that pocket of presence. And everywhere Jesus goes, he's bringing what we've been calling the kingdom of God, what he calls the kingdom of God. He announces that and says, I, the kingdom has come, the kingdom is near. And where he goes, the kingdom of God is only, Matthew actually doesn't use that term to describe the kingdom of God. He, unlike the other gospels, uses a different term, which is kingdom of heaven. Same thing, he just uses that verbiage to describe it. So the kingdom of heaven, those intersections go wherever Jesus goes as he's bringing, he's, he's showing what earth ought to be like when heaven is fully present there. And so he's bringing healing to show that sickness and disease aren't there anymore when he is present. And he's casting out demons and he's bringing light and he's bringing truth wherever he goes. And so we get to see this and he even tells his disciples, pray this prayer, your kingdom, that is the kingdom of heaven, your, may your kingdom come and your will be done this is kind of crazy because we always say heaven is where you go after you leave earth. He says, pray for the kingdom of heaven to be here on earth. Pray for your kingdom to come, your will be to be done just as it is in heaven. So for that stuff to begin taking place right where he is. And then this amazing thing happens where Jesus dies on a cross and in that moment we're told that what takes place in the temple the veil that separates, okay, the veil that, that marks off the Holy of Holies and separates human beings from the absolute presence, that is the center of where that intersection is, the veil rips apart, signifying that now anybody, it's not just a high priest and it no longer takes human sacrifice, now anybody has access to that presence. Anybody has the ability now through Jesus' sacrifice to stand in the overlap. To stand in those places. Now, this is kind of interesting. Hebrews, specifically Hebrews chapter 9, would go back and tell us that actually that was always the way that anybody ever stood in the presence of God. The only way that um, anyone was able to dwell in the intersection of the two places was because of what Jesus does. And so it says in Hebrews 9 that actually the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. 
So when the priest was sacrificing a bull for his sin and walking in, that bull wasn't really doing anything. It was actually only Jesus' blood that was retroactively applied to that priest that was allowing him to go in. So this, this pocket, this intersection was always because of what Jesus had done before. So, Jesus creates this. There's now perfect access for someone to step into this space through Him, and yet we still don't see actually these two realms of heaven and earth coming fully together. And that is because um, earth is still in rebellion against heaven. There is still war between the two, and we believe God to be sovereign over the earth, and yet the Bible seems fairly clear that that Satan has been given some level of authority over the world. He's called the prince of this world. And, and so this is, in some sense, his realm, and it is constantly battling with and at war the realm of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of earth. Kind of the interesting thing is when looked at, like we know, we know, right, as Christians who, who believe in the Bible, we believe that, that God is in control and that it's his realm that wins. But if you look strictly from the earthly perspective, if all you ever do is watch the news, if all you ever do is look around you, it really can look a lot of times like this side is winning. Like the kingdom of earth is only... If, you, you, if you're living in the Middle East right now and ISIS is coming crashing through um, your hometown and just destroying everything they see and, and just inflicting terror all over, it does not look like heaven is winning in that moment. And if you watch the news and just hear about the things that are going on all around us, it does not look a lot of times like heaven is winning. And, and that would have been, I think, especially true for a lot of Christians growing up in, that, in the Roman Empire during the first century. Those who were living at that time when the church is really still a, a pretty small entity, a, a pretty small group, and they're dwelling in the mighty Roman Empire, which had for over a century been in control of the entire known world, basically. Um, so everything they knew, pretty much, Rome ruled over with an iron fist. And, and no one was able to stand up and stop Rome. And no one was able to keep them at bay. And Rome expected total allegiance from all the people dwelling in its empire. Total allegiance and also actually even worship. Um, there was a thing that, that some of you know about, but, but what was known as the imperial cult, which was the, the leading, it was temples and it was worship systems set up for the worship of the Caesars, for the worship of the empire of Rome. And it, it kind of started back when Augustus, who was the emperor um, when Jesus was born, um, he did a lot to bring the empire together and put it in place. And, and he began, especially after his death, began to be hailed as divine. And, and so that became, from there on out, that was kind of the tradition. The, the, the Caesars were looked at somewhat as divine, a lot of times kind of posthumously, but, but more and more they started taking that on themselves where they wanted worship even as they were alive, Domitian, the emperor who lives in the 90s of A.D., he is, he is one who expected and demanded worship. And, and you have this little pocket of people, this little group of people meeting in their house churches saying that their full allegiance actually goes to Jesus. And, and yes, they will respect and submit to the authorities, but their ultimate allegiance is to another Savior, another King, and none of their worship goes anywhere but to Him. 
that it only falls on him. And, and here they are trying to hang in there and saying, this is our king. This is the one we follow. By the way, that king is one that Rome had just crucified in humiliating fashion some 50 years earlier. So as sort of a demonstration of his weakness and their great power, they crucify this man. And these churches are trying to be faithful and say that they want to follow him. It looks from their perspective, especially these seven churches in Asia Minor. Asia Minor, from what we can tell, is where the imperial cult was at its strongest. It's where we had a number of temples set up to Caesar and to Rome. And where, where many people, if you worked in any sort of trade, were expected to be um, your trade guild as a carpenter, as whatever it may be, was expected to be burning incense to Rome and declaring your worship and your allegiance to Rome. And so you have these churches there in Asia Minor, and to them, the battle between these two realms looks very, very lopsided. It really does look like Rome is the one with all the power. And that's the whole reason that Revelation is written. John writes the book of Revelation to say, yes, things are very, very lopsided, just not in the way you think they are. It's, it is completely a one-sided battle. There is one side that has all the power and all the authority. It's just not the one that you think that it is. And so John writes to tell the churches this, in spite of what it may look like, in spite of what it may feel like for you, you need to know which side ultimately wins and which side is in control and in power right now. And so he writes, and I'm going to give you a very, very basic outline of the book of Revelation real quick to explain kind of how, how he lays this out. Chapters 1 and 3 are introduction and letters to the seven churches. Introduction in which John kind of introduces what was happening. I was on the Isle of Patmos and Jesus came in May and revealed himself to me and began to speak to me. And he had these messages for the churches. So he introduces that and then he writes these letters to the seven churches. Chapters 4 through 5 really are the critical piece of Revelation. And that is what, to, to be able to see what Revelation is about, you've got to get 4 through 5. You've got to get 4 and 5. 4 and 5 are focused on the rule of God and the Lamb and the worship directed towards God and the Lamb. So the rule and the worship of God and the Lamb, that is Jesus. I'm actually going to, I want to just read um, a section from 5 to you real quick. Um, so chapter 4, one of the things you'll see is it, it centers on God sitting on His throne. And all the amazing things. You just read that and see how many times the word throne pops up. And John is communicating something to say, Caesar may be in Rome. He may look like he's in charge. Um, the systems of this world may be in play. But there is only one who is truly on his throne. And so he describes God over and over on the throne. And then he shifts the focus on Jesus in chapter 5. And, and he talks about the worthiness of him to open this scroll that's in there. Um, but I want to move you to um, chapter 5 verse 11. This is what John says. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And that's interesting because remember you have 
earth against heaven. And he's saying that, no, no, eventually every creature on earth also worships. And it says, they were saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So John says, take your eyes off of everything you see around you for a minute. And I want you to take them up to heaven. I want you to take them um, towards the throne room of God where the Lamb is. And I want you to see that thousands upon thousands of angels fall down and worship Him and proclaim His might and His worthiness and His sovereignty. And so that is 4 and 5. Then we get to Revelation 6 through 18, the largest chunk of it. Revelation 6 through 18 is basically, in light of the fact that the Lamb is sovereign and God is sovereign, they judge the earth. And so you see three different waves of this. Um, John describes judgment through the opening of the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And, and basically what appears to be happening is he, he's, he, says, he does the seven seals and then rewinds and then shows you that judgment being poured out again through the seven trumpets and then rewinds and then shows you those seven, that, that judgment being poured out again through the seven bowls. Revelation 19 and 20 are about the defeat of Satan and Babylon, i.e. Rome. Um, so Jesus is in charge, he judges the earth, and then Jesus defeats the dragon, that is Satan, and defeats Rome. And, and Rome really does exemplify the world, the kingdoms of the world. All those who had set themselves up above or over God. And so Jesus conquers them and then chapters 21 and 22 are the restoration of all things. The restoration of all things. I want to read to you from Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4 and listen to how relevant this is to what we've been describing here for the last 30 minutes. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So the point of Revelation is to at least indicate to, to indicate at least two things. First is, regardless of what it may look like, God and the realm of heaven and the kingdom of heaven, um, God is sovereign, and He is in control, and He wins, but He doesn't win eventually actually by destroying all of earth and everything that he's made it says at the end that now the kingdom or now the dwelling of god is with man and you see the picture is jerusalem coming down and joining together and so he wins by eventually returning and restoring things back to the way they were in eden that now instead of a garden you have a city but the concept is the same, that the dwelling of God is with man, and heaven and earth and that overlap is perfectly restored so that the presence and the glory and the reign and rule of God is restored once again to the earth. And these two things come together in, in what is really almost kind of described as a marriage. 
um, these, these coming together of these two entities. So, any questions or thoughts? We just went from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 and 22 there. Um, any, anything that's kind of popped in your mind as we've gone through that? All right. Got the fast crowd, yeah. Well, okay. So earth is going to be restored and heaven will be really, will be established here. Yeah. So when we get this concept that we're all going to rise and go up. Uh-huh. Yes. So we may be coming back down. To yes. <laughs> I think so. I do. I think so. And, and the Bible, it's... Second Thessalonians or First Thessalonians talks, in, talks about us going and meeting him, meeting Jesus kind of in the air. And so there does seem to be this explanation, but over and over again it seems he says there's a new heaven and a new earth, and the idea is not like a chuck out the old one and go buy a new one, right? It's a renewed is kind of the idea, and a restored, and, and so these things are made right again. And I really do, I believe we dwell physically, bodily, on a, in a very physical place as uh, when, when Jesus returns, that, that all of this becomes like it was meant to be. So. Pretty exciting stuff. Yes, it really is. It really is. Yeah, yeah there's some confusing passages. Peter talks about everything burning up. Yes. 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 And we, yeah, we, we go with Peter's statement about the burning up, and a lot of times we just stop there. And, and kind of like, what does it matter? It's all going to burn anyway, and then we'll be taken away. But yeah, the whole idea is it's, it's almost a, it's a purifying burn, right? Um, that it, it renews, it, it purifies, it restores back to what it is, is meant to be. So, it's good. All right, we'll take two, three minutes, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll jump into the gospel of God. Okay, so um, last week, Scott and Ryan kind of took you through a little bit of the history of the New Testament as, as Scott really introduced Acts and, and Ryan took us through the epistles. But one of the things that, that Scott lined out with you is the gospel sermons as they were preached in Acts. So uh, asking what was the gospel to the early church, and, and one of the best ways to know is to look at what they preached when they were preaching the gospel to people. And so he walked through those and, and talked about those a little bit in comparison to the way that we often kind of think through and talk about the gospel. I, I remember... In uh, I think it was my junior year, having a uh, a class it was actually on evangelism, personal evangelism was what it was called at Ozark, and and one of our assignments is actually to read through the Book of Acts and read through all the gospel presentations in there, and and basically kind of outline the elements of those gospel presentations. And I remember really being taken back um, when I started reading and realizing that a lot of the things that I viewed as key to the gospel, they didn't touch on in their gospel presentations. Like there's a lot of stuff that Peter left out that I would have said needed to be in there. Um, Things like, God loves you, never makes it into an Acts sermon. Um, Things like heaven, 
Never makes it into an accident, right? They, they, they don't stress these things. And I remember really going, man, what? that is really weird. And what do I do with this? And, and, and that kind of spinning in my head for a little bit. I, I, I'll tell you this. I noticed what was left out. I, I sadly don't know if it really if it was really impressed on me the stuff that was put in there that I often didn't put in. Things like the lineage of David. And, and when's the last time you heard somebody present the gospel and mention the name David? And, and they, like, they go to it a lot, the apostles do. Um, uh, you know, and, and so, so it was, I, I don't know if I caught that, but I do remember this, man, why aren't they hitting on these things and wrestling with that? But in some ways, it really didn't affect the way I went about talking about the gospel. I didn't know what to do with what they said, and all I had known was the way it had been presented to me from the time I was a kid and the way it was described over and over and over again. And, and so I just kind of went back to the default um, of, of, of explaining those things without ever really um, letting it affect me all that much until the last couple years where this stuff has started to come together and started to press on me a little bit more that the gospel may be bigger than the way I've heard it explained and the way I've been explaining it for most of my life. Um, one of the books that I, I've been reading this summer actually that's really uh, impressed that I, mean, I think we mentioned it is The King Jesus Gospel by Scott McKnight. And it is definitely worth the read um, when, when you look through those things. Um, there's a, uh, basically, McKnight's contention is what we've been sharing as the gospel is basically the plan of salvation. How a person gets saved, which is a part of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. It's not the whole gospel. And, and so he's kind of trying to, to set forth a, a bigger picture. In his book, he talks about this professor at Wheaton um, named Robert Weber. And, and the story goes that anytime you ask Robert Weber, like this professor, um, like, what is the gospel? How would you explain the gospel? Weber would respond by saying, do you have an hour? Um, because, because it's bigger than something I can just give you in a sentence or two. The gospel is contrary to the way I've talked about it and the way it's been presented to me a lot. The gospel is probably bigger than something you can write on a napkin. Um, and and it's, it's fuller than that. It's, it's stronger than that. And, and so we need to be able to see kind of the bigger picture of what it is. Um, that being said, you can, in a sense, summarize it. You, you can give some bit of a summary, and it's not going to cover every piece of it, but you can summarize it because they do that in the Bible. And in some sense, the sermons that we're reading in Acts probably aren't the full sermons. They're probably Luke's summary of what that person was saying. Um, one of the best summaries, if not um, the, the best summary, I don't know, in the entire Bible uh, of the gospel is Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Um, this is, Romans is kind of considered, you know, the quintessential epistle when it comes to outlaying or laying out the gospel and dissecting it and really coming, studying all the implications of it. And so it would make sense that Paul, as he introduces the book, as he introduces what he wants to talk to him about, would kind of give us a rundown of what the gospel is. That's what he does in the first four verses. And I want to read this to you, and I want you to listen for a second. I want you to listen to the different elements that he hits in, in this, and, and we'll, we'll talk about those elements here. 
says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, um, this is... Like I said, one of the better, if not better, you know, one of the greatest summaries I think you could get of, of the gospel in a nutshell. Um, what does he hit on here? What are some of the elements that he hits in that summary? Okay, descendant of David. He makes sure to say, who according to the flesh is a descendant of David. Why? Why does that matter? Because, because David is the king. And so it's important and significant, not that Jesus is just in some kind of figurative, metaphorical way king. They're saying, no, he literally is the king of Israel, literally is the one promised to reign and rule over God's people. And, and so that's big. What, what else does he mention in here? Okay, the one promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's really big. Um, they, over and over again, you'll see in the book of Acts as they're preaching, they refer back to the Scriptures a whole lot and say, what Jesus was doing is fulfilling, or I like kind of the term, filling up what we saw predicted or talked about in the Old Testament. He's, he's a fulfillment, a, a conclusion to um, the story that was proclaimed about Israel in the Scriptures. What else? Okay, that his resurrection is kind of interesting. He says, according to the flesh, he's the son of David. According to the spirit, he's the son of God. And that was declared by his resurrection. By the spirit's power in resurrecting is what he seems to be saying. Um, that, so that showed him to be the son of God. That showed him to, to kind of have his power and the identity. What else? What? It's told beforehand. Okay, as mentioned beforehand. That's good. What? Promised, yeah. Here's the big one, easy to overlook. Um, concerning his son. This is how Paul sums up what the gospel is about. So he doesn't say the gospel of God concerning his salvation, which is a lot of times I think how we would explain, what is the gospel about? It's about how you get saved. Um, it's about how you get to heaven. He doesn't say concerning salvation. He doesn't say the gospel of God concerning his love or concerning heaven. He says the gospel of God concerning his son. That is what the gospel can be summed up to be about more than anything else. Um, if you want to know what the gospel is, it's Jesus and his identity and his purpose and his actions. That's really big. Um, one of the things that's not in here and, and just kind of interesting the crucifixion, dying for our sins, not in here. And, and don't, again, it's a summary, so don't read too much into that and say, well, I guess it wasn't important. He's going to talk plenty about that in the book of Romans. It's just interesting that that's probably the first place we go. Um, and Paul doesn't actually include it in his summary here. Just like I said, don't read a ton into it, but I think it's at least fascinating. He does make sure to get the resurrection. That appears to be in some sense. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that's the thing that if you move that, everything else falls apart. 
Um, so you, you must be right on the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Um, but the two things I really want us to catch is the concerning His Son, that's really big, and the one that's been mentioned uh, according to the Scriptures, that that is really big, that the apostles saw this as a fulfillment of, as, a, as the climax of the greater story that's already been told. This is what Andrew Wilson says. He actually has a, a chapter called Concerning His Son, uh, one of my favorite chapters in the God Stories book, um, and worth looking at. But he says this about that idea of it being according to the prophets and the scriptures. He says, The news that Paul is announcing is not and never has been a new thing. Christianity is the fulfillment of an old thing, the climax of thousands of promises and prophecies through dozens of people across at least 40 centuries. That's what the gospel is, is the fulfillment of an old thing. And that's actually been what we've been describing this entire summer, is that, is that the Bible is a story, and it's all leading us to this one place, the story of Scripture. So here's what I'm going to try and do. I'm going to try to give you a 30-minute summary of the gospel, a 30-minute summary of everything we've been talking about over the last summer, for the, this last summer, and then I'm going to maybe, um, maybe give you a... 30-second summary of the gospel. I don't know. Um, but uh, I want for the main thing, I want to make sure we get a 30-minute summary of, of kind of the gospel. And so I'm going to be walking us back through these truths and, and how they apply. So at the beginning, what we have is um, God creating the world, creating the universe, and everything is as it should be. So God creates the earth, and He reigns over it in joy and in glory. And then He creates Adam and Eve, and Genesis 1.27 says He creates them in His own image. Um, that they are made in His likeness, which we said means three specific things, amongst maybe some others, but it means we, we had three kind of R words. Does anybody remember what that is? To resemble or represent, okay? So He resembles, represents, okay? And it means that they rule so that... God creates and He says, Be fruitful and multiply, go and have dominion over the earth. And the idea is that just as God rules over the earth, man in His image is to rule and care for the earth on His behalf, to cultivate it for Him. So they resemble Him, they can look like Him in His character or represent Him. Um, they rule on His behalf and lastly they have the ability to relate both to one another um, to each other, but also specifically to God. Just as God is a relational God within the Trinity, um, they can relate. Um, God says, be fruitful and multiply, i.e., multiply my image, multiply my glory throughout the world wherever you go. Instead of doing this, what they end up doing is rebelling, and instead of ruling on His behalf for Him, they decide we want to rule in, in our own place. We want to set ourselves up and do what we want to do. And, and in the process, the image is actually distorted. Still there, every human being is still made in the image of God, but it's distorted much like a mirror that has had like a rock thrown at it and it spider webs out. You can still see your reflection in it, but it's, it's a little messed up. And it's, it's not quite as clear as it's supposed to be. Rebellion becomes the dominant theme of humanity. 
Like this is what they do more than anything else. They rebel and try to usurp the authority of God and do what they want rather than what he does. So much so does it become that, that by the time we get to know where the writer says that all the thoughts of man and all the thoughts and meditations of their heart had become only wicked all the time. That was it. And so God hits kind of a reset button with the flood and starts over again. And, and the reason we can say it's a start over, we didn't actually, when we covered the covenants, we didn't talk about the Noahic covenant, which is specifically in Genesis 9, there's a covenant there called the Noahic covenant. We didn't talk about it basically because we, we see it as a bit of a reset of the Adam covenant. He gives them the same command, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over the earth. And so he just starts again with Noah. But things don't change or get much better until we get to Genesis 11 in Babel, in which people are again trying to rebel and usurp, and they're building this tower for their own glory and for their own name and for their own recognition. And so God begins from there to narrow the focus. And so we see in Genesis 12, he narrows down to Abraham. And Genesis 12, we said, perhaps top five most important passages in the Old Testament, maybe number one, in that so much of the truths of the Old Testament flow out of it, where God calls this man named Abram, probably a pagan, probably an idol worshiper who doesn't know him yet, and God calls him to follow him to this land that he's going to give him. And he says, if you'll follow me and go to the land there, then I'm going to bless you. And he says specifically this, that through you and your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to bless all the nations. And so what we see was Adam was charged with governing, with ruling the entire world on God's place. Now he has narrowed the focus in and Abraham and his family are responsible for blessing the entire world. Um, that They're going to be the instruments through which God does this. They become the truest image bearers, or they're meant to be, Abraham and his family, to be the truest image bearers in that they are supposed to be the ones who relate to God when nobody else is. And they're supposed to cultivate and rule and bless properly. And they're supposed to represent Him properly. But even from the beginning we see um, Abraham and his family are flawed. Um, that, that from the outset they're messed up and yet God continues to work His purposes through them. Fast forward again to Exodus. God's people, Abraham's family, has grown into this nation, but they're all slaves in Egypt. And so God sends Moses to rescue his people. God pursues and rescues and saves his people out of there. And it's at this point that he really does kind of solidify his relationship with them through the law, through the Torah. And this is kind of interesting. Up until this point, nobody had any written document explaining this is what God wants from us. And this is how we relate to Him. It was simply God showing up to people and revealing it to them. And then they were to obey and kind of pass that on to their family. But here we actually have God's written word given to them. That's why they see it as such a blessing as He reveals Himself to them. And they're going to be the image bearers. They're going to be, we said this, a kingdom of priests. So he makes them to be this kingdom of priests. Exodus 19, 5 through 6, six says this, but they don't do a very good job of this. Um, the covenant, what this does is provides kind of a concrete expression of the human condition. That is, deeply loved by God, 
but deeply sinful and separated from God. That's what the tabernacle does. It comes and says to the people, God loves you enough that He wants to be with you, that He will dwell among you. It also says this, though, He's so holy and you're so sinful that there's, that, that there's got to be something that makes that possible. And that becomes sacrifice. So this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, really gives us the expression of that. Um, loved but sinful and needing to this um, God consistently amongst these people. They're supposed to be this kingdom of priests. They're supposed to be, Israel is supposed to be the image bearers that Adam was supposed to be at the beginning. But consistently, from like the time they crossed the Red Sea on, he consistently refers to them as stiff-necked and stubborn and hard-hearted. And they do not fulfill the promises that were supposed to be given to them. Uh, or that they were supposed to be living out. They don't fulfill their obligations as image bearers, their responsibilities. So they get to the land. They ask God shortly after being there for a king because they want to be like the nations around them. And God gives them one even though he, he doesn't really want to. He is supposed to be their king, ruling the world through them, directly over them. And yet they say, no, we want one. He gives them one in Saul and then he does one better and gives them actually in his grace... He gives them like the model king of what they ought to be. What, what a king should be, he gives them David. And, and David has this special and unique kind of relationship with God. He really does rule on God's behalf. He really does relate to him in a way that other people weren't relating to him. And, and he seems to be able to represent and resemble God in his character and, and in the way that he rules and cares for the people. He's the model of everything that they're wanting. In 2 Samuel um, 7, God makes this promise to David that you will always have someone ruling in your kingdom forever. That there will be someone um, from your throne who will rule forever. Someone, a descendant of yours, a lineage who will rule from here on out. Um, even David, though, actually, as the model king, fails to live up to the image. And he seeks instead of always seeking to obey and rule under God and do what he wants. He usurps the authority. He does what he wants. He goes after Bathsheba when he sees her, regardless of what that might mean. He has Uriah killed when that gets close to this. He does these things where he arrogantly, and it gets hard for us to figure out exactly what's going on, but he counts off the people as kind of a way of puffing up his own pride, and David makes it about himself. So he becomes even an example of being flawed, and yet he's the best of all of them. It's only downhill from David. And it gets worse and worse, progressively worse. Um, the period of the kings becomes one of the darkest ages in the history of the nation as they plummet into idolatry and as they plummet into rebellion. Um, soon after Solomon, David's son, the nation is divided into the north, Israel, and the south, Judah. And then they are both taken into exile Israel is taken into exile by what empire? Do you remember? Assyria in what year? 722 B.C. So the northern kingdom is taken away in 722 B.C. These ones essentially disappear. Like for the most part, they get, in, they get um, pulled off and, and into exile and spread out, and then another empire, the Babylonian one, sweeps in, and in that process, they, they somewhat get lost. Um, we can't track them real well. And, and then Judah lasts a little bit longer. They get taken into exile by Babylon in 586. 
or 587, but probably five, I, I like to say 586 BC is when they get taken into exile. And so these nations get taken away. Now, Judah is different. The southern kingdom gets taken up into Babylon, and while they're there, the prophets begin prophesying. So you have this very, very dark period in Israel's history, and yet you also have in the middle of it some of the brightest like beams of light shining out of it through some of the prophets' predictions of the future. And one of the predictions that continues to come up over and over again for the people in captivity in Babylon is that God reserves for himself a remnant and he's going to redeem them. And so he's going to, um, he's going to yeah, redeem this remnant back and bring them back out of captivity. He's going to set them up in the land again and there's going to be this glorious day when God's people are where they're supposed to be and they're worshiping him as he's supposed to worship or as they're as he's meant to be worshipped, that they're going to live out what they were designed to do. Now, this actually starts to take place in 586. So in 586 um, BC, what did I say? When did they get taken away? I said 586. Sorry about that. Um, So what would it be then? 486, maybe? Don't, don't, whoever's listening to this, don't make this official. I'll check that later. Um, I want to say 486 under Cyrus is actually, no, 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 516. Okay, I got it. 516. Um, um, In 516, Cyrus um, becomes king of Persia. The Persian Empire overtakes the Babylonian Empire, and he actually makes a decree. We actually, it's crazy. We have, it's called the Cyrus Cylinder. And, and, and we have this cylinder that is the document explaining that all the exiles get to go home. And, uh, and, and so he says that, and that includes the people of Judah, that they get to go back to Jerusalem. And he even sends the temple um, pieces, the temple relics back with them, and they get to bring those back and begin to build their temple again and begin to build their walls. And so the prediction that God will redeem a remnant and bring them back comes true, but only sort of. It's, it's like it's... It's like this half-full promise because they get back and it's, it's not glorious. It's not amazing and the land is not beautiful. And, and if you remember when they lay the foundation for the temple, it's described, they start to build it there. I believe it's in Ezra. describes they lay the foundation and the people start to laugh and cry and they're shouting out. And, and what, it says, or what Ezra says is that the younger ones are laughing and crying these tears of joy because they're so happy to see the foundation of the temple built. The older ones who are around to remember the glory of the former temple, they're crying in sorrow because they see how much less beautiful this is, how much less amazing this is. And so that prediction that God is going to make everything right like seems to come true, sort of, but like not all the way. And there's this little revival that starts up when he brings them back, but it doesn't last all that long. And it even kind of tails off. And so it's like the the promise only half gets filled up. And then you have 400 years of silence while God is basically clearing and resetting up the stage. It really is. It's almost like a, a, a play in which the curtain is drawn for the intermission while the stage gets set up and Alexander the Great conquers, creating one language for the world so that the gospel can spread. And then the Romans take over, creating like the world's best traveling system. It was the best traveling system until like the, it wasn't improved upon until the 1800s. Um, the, the Roman road system. And so this incredible system by which the gospel can travel. And it brings to power these Romans who, who love to use crucifixion 
as their primary means of executing rebels. And so all of this comes to place to take care of these things. Um, and then you have in Luke this angel appear. I want to, I want to have, actually, I should probably read because I'm, I'm on the mic here. Um, so Luke 1, the angel appears to Mary. And this is what he says, and I want you to pay attention, listen to the way that what he describes about Jesus, what's about to take place, listen to the way that this is a fulfilling of the things that we've been describing so far. So Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 35, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so this becomes the description of him. And do you hear this? It says this, that he will be son of the Most High. He will be son of God, which means what we're about to have for the first time in history since Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden. We're about to have for the first time someone who properly, truly, accurately becomes the image of God. Someone who properly displays all that. And because he's in the lineage of David, he's going to rule like he's supposed to. And because he's the actual son of the Most High, he'll be able to properly resemble him. And because he's the son, he can relate to him as a father does to his son. He's doing all the things that, that man was originally meant to do. And, and Colossians 1, I think, is, is intentional when it says that Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. And Hebrews 1, when it says this, that the, that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of His being or of His nature. Jesus is what Adam was supposed to be, what Abraham and his family was supposed to be, what Israel was supposed to be, what David was supposed to be, Jesus is. And he comes and he fills out those truths. Um, and so, Jesus is here. He brings the rule of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And wherever he goes, as we described, the kingdom of God goes with him. And he shows what it's supposed to be like. And he's displaying these things properly wherever he goes. And then John 1, we talked about it. John 1 says, and this is perhaps the epitome of the rebellion of humanity and the darkness um, describes this, that even though the world was made through him, and John 1 gives us that he tabernacled among us. It says, even though the world was, a, was made through him, the world did not know him. So finally, the image bearer comes, the one that we're all supposed to be, steps onto the scene, and this is the guy that, that is restoring everything that we've lost, and our reaction is to attack and crucify to kill him. And so the imperfect image bearers go after to destroy the perfect one, the one who is coming to restore this. What they don't know in their crucifying him is that Jesus is actually, so this has been the key word for the world, rebellion. 
Jesus, when he goes to the cross, is actually entering into their rebellion. So he's lived the life that they were supposed to live, and then he takes on their punishment, and then takes on the death that they're supposed to die. And so he enters into this, and, and as the image bearer represents them, and takes on their death. So then, the, the, the apostles, they don't see it at the time. The disciples don't see it. It's later that they look back, and they start to make the connections, and they see what was actually happening when Jesus goes to the cross. And they go to Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. And, and the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. By his wounds were healed. And they go, oh, like that's, that's what was happening. Like that's what that suffering servant thing was about in Isaiah 53 that none of us could totally figure out. And that's what was happening when Jesus goes onto the cross. He's actually entering into the rebellion and entering into their sin. Paul kind of outlines it for us in Romans 3. 21 through 26, and this is one of the cooler passages describing what the death of Jesus accomplishes. Romans 3, verses 21 through 26, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Do you hear that? The law and the prophets is the catchphrase for the Old Testament. That's what I mean. He says, so the Old Test, so this righteousness that comes from God is not like a new thing and we're done with the old way. He's saying the Old Testament was bearing witness to what was, hap- was about to happen through Jesus. The law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is a wrath absorber, the one who takes on the punishment of God, by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Now listen, this is what Hebrews was saying to us. Because in His divine forbearance, God had passed over the former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what Paul says was in his forbearance, God didn't destroy Moses for his sin. He waited and then punished Moses' sin in Jesus on the cross. God didn't destroy David for his sin. He waited in his patience and forbearance and punished that sin on the cross. And Jesus' um, uh, sacrifice covers over those sins So what they end up, let's see, so the reason that the apostles are able to see this is because obviously of the resurrection. And when Jesus dies, there were actually many men around Jesus' time who uh, who claimed to be the Messiah, who claimed to be the one who was promised to come save them. And all of them, most of them were able to start movements, um, started movements, got a big group together following them, just like Jesus did, and then the Romans came and killed them and the movement died away. Because when the Messiah goes, so does the following. And, and Jesus is the only one historically where the Messiah dies at the hands of the Romans, like all the others, and the movement grows afterwards. And that is because of the resurrection. Historians can't explain this, um, how every other Messiah's movement dies, 
and Jesus' lives on. There's no other explanation other than what they are saying, and that is that he was resurrected. And so Jesus, in the process of doing these things, becomes the blessing for the whole world. And he, in his death and resurrection, rescues the world and sets up God's kingdom here on earth. Hebrews says that he is actually the true and right priest restoring the remnant and setting up a kingdom forever. What Jesus does is he fills out all the promises that were made in the Old Testament. One of my favorite, most overlooked verses in Scripture is 2 Corinthians 1.20 where Paul says, all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. That every promise that God ever made about how he's going to deal with the world and how he's going to bless the world and make everything right, the, the yes of those promises, the fulfillment, the amen of those promises is always Jesus. And so it all comes to a conclusion in him. It all comes to a climax that springs out from there. Um, once the apostles have seen this, once his followers see how he begins to fill up all of these promises, they start to realize and unpack some of the truths behind it. They declare this, that Jesus is the Messiah, and that anyone who aligns themselves or identifies themselves with Jesus enters into him. So this is one of Ephesians, Paul's favorite phrases over and over again, in Christ. That those who are Christians are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And what that means is when I am in Christ, that means that I also get put into his death. So I, I'm supposed to die for my sins, and Paul says, you did when Jesus died. And then he, he says, because I'm in him, I also get the resurrection that Jesus got. Um, one of the illustrations Andrew Wilson uses that is silly and profound all at the same time is a piece of chewing gum that goes into the mouth of a climber when he goes up Everest. And he says this, that the chewing gum actually climbs Mount Everest, but not because of anything it does, just because it's in the climber. Like it, it makes it to the top of Everest just like the climber. And that's the exact way it works, he says with us, is that when we are in Christ, we technically accomplished the things that he accomplished. It just wasn't us. It was him, and now we're identified with him. We're placed in Christ. Um, so the resurrection, after we die to our sins, the resurrection makes us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, a new creation. Now catch that. In the beginning, they were created in the image of God. Now Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. That is, the image is restored, and now we have the ability to do, to be, to live out what God designed us to be that we now actually have the ability, we have that because He puts His Spirit in us. And so now we can actually live out these things um, because the Spirit is in us. Now, the image is restored in us, but we still would recognize, and this phrase is used a lot to describe the kingdom or describe our state as God's followers and our sanctification, now and not yet. So the image is restored in us now, and, and yet we wait for the time when it will be made perfect, when everything will become just the way it was meant to be. We're not yet there. The kingdom is not fully realized yet. The image of God is not fully realized in us. But one day, the Bible says, Jesus will return and restore heaven and earth, making it perfect again, as we just discussed. This is how Scott McKnight describes it in this little paragraph um, in his book. He says, Now we rule in an imperfect world in an imperfect way as imperfect image bearers. 
but someday the perfect image bearer will come back and he will rescue his people and set them up one more time in this world. This time, though it will be right because Jesus will be the temple and the garden will be the eternal city and it will be filled with peace, love, joy, and holiness, all rebellion will end and everyone will serve Jesus in the power of the Spirit to the glory of God the Father. Humans will govern on God's behalf in the way of Jesus forever. And this is the summary of the gospel in 30-ish minutes. Um, uh, 35 minutes, as near as I can. And, and again, I mean, like I said, as Weber would say, do you have an hour? So I don't know if it's good enough. Um, but let me give you, let me do this real quick. And, and I, I actually hesitated when I was typing this today, going, I don't know if I, because this is a work in progress. But if, if someone asked me, okay, I've only got two minutes. What's the gospel? Um, this is, as I said, imperfect, and, and it's a summary. It's, I'm still working on it, but this is what I would say to them. And, and don't try to write it down because it's a lot, and you'll just be mad at me. Um, so if someone were to ask me, what is the gospel? I would say the gospel is the good news that God is reclaiming His glory and rule on the earth through His Son Jesus in fulfillment of the story of Israel. As the perfect image bearer, Jesus lived the life that human beings were meant to live, then died the death that they were meant to die, absorbing the punishment for sin and removing the guilt for sin. Three days later, God physically resurrected him through the Spirit's power, which defeated death and declared Jesus to be the rightful king who rules over the world on God's behalf. Anyone who aligns themselves with Jesus in trust, that is faith, and, and devotion is placed in Him, having their old sinful selves crucified with Him and their new self raised to life by the Holy Spirit's power through grace. This same Spirit now indwells them and enables them to begin living out their original design as image bearers. One day, what God has begun in Christ will come to completion as He restores the unity of heaven and earth and every living thing will acknowledge the supremacy of Christ to the glory of God the Father. So that's my Romans 1, 1 through 4, if, if I had to lay it out a little bit. Um, thoughts, um, questions, any glaring thing I just left out of the gospel um, before we put this on the internet and I get, whatever, labeled a heretic or anything like that. Any, anything, anything kind of cross your mind? Yeah. 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 You are commanded to believe this and to hold to this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been so, like I said, these are things that just in the last few years are coming together for me, but it's so helped me to see all that kind of yeah, play out that together. Was, but. That was really lovely. And, you know, I think, you know, Jesus got a bad rap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because he was carrying the sins of all of us, but I yes. love him and thank him. Yes, yes.
Definitely. Definitely. All right. Thanks, guys, for being the, the faithful, sticking it out to the end. It was good to, good to see you guys, and, and uh, maybe next time we'll... I don't know. This is the thing. I don't know. We just did the Bible. I don't know what to do after this next summer. But uh, so we'll, we'll have to figure that out. But.